Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. I'm talking with Dr. Philip Drew and Dr. Bruce Oswald. They're authors of the journal Rwanda Revisited, Genocide, Civil War, and the Transformation of International Law. Dr. Philip Drew is an associate professor at Australia National University and assistant dean at Faculty of Law at Queen's University. Hello, Leah. It's a pleasure to be here. And Dr. Bruce Oswald, professor at Melbourne Law School. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you, Lee, and your audience. Thank you both. First of all, can you tell us about your experience and what made you both qualified to write about the genocide in Rwanda? The project that we did on Rwanda is a retrospect uh, for um, for us in that uh, we both served in Unimir in 1994. Um, I was the um, intelligence officer with the Canadian contingent, and uh, Oz was the legal officer for the Australian contingent, both of, of which were located in Kigali, Rwanda, in uh, the summer of 94. We are both also uh, professors of law and have uh, spent uh, pretty much the last 25 years uh, often reflecting on what uh, we saw in Rwanda what we experienced uh, and what we've learned from that and have been speaking for years on the idea of getting together to write on the issue and to uh, have a retrospective. And uh, I think that uh, we have finally managed to do that after 25 years and it's been a great experience to work with Oz again and as well with all the uh, fantastic authors that contributed to the journal. So Phil really was the instigator of this cunning plan by uh, suggesting um, not only the editors but also who to reach out to and uh, did most of the work in setting us up for success. Um, And it is true that uh, over all the years that I've known him, he's been very, very passionate Uh, and committed to trying to capture not only our experiences in Rwanda, but what were the lessons learned, something I know, Lee, you're going to come back to in uh, in a few minutes. Uh, And I think what he's ended up, or what we've ended up achieving um, in this volume is really that combination, Um, you know, trying to capture what people went through uh, as best as one can, um, particularly after 25 years, um, but also to capture some of the lessons learned um, from that experience. And you've read about the United Nations assistance mission in Rwanda and how it was really doomed from the start. Unumir was meant to bring peace between the Hutu and the Tutsi groups. Why did they fail? When we look at the uh, Unumir mission in Rwanda, we often think of it as a pure peacekeeping mission, but that wasn't the way it was set up. It was originally set up more or less as an election monitoring uh, mission. It it wasn't designed to be a mission where we usually have the traditional peacekeeping model of uh, one side it wasn't the type of mission 
uh, correction, I'm going to start again. It wasn't the traditional type of peacekeeping mission where we have two sides that are fighting and uh, have a peacekeeping force in between. Indeed, at the time that Unimir was designed, it was designed uh, principally to monitor uh, the peace agreement and to assist the two sides in achieving an, uh, a fair and balanced election. So uh, when things uh, started to decline, particularly in the autumn of 1993 and into 1994, the mission wasn't uh, set up to achieve the requirements of a standard peacekeeping mission. It Indeed, it, uh, it just didn't have the right uh, goals, it didn't have the right equipment, and it didn't have enough people. So, uh, Oz, I'll, I'll hand over to you, because you probably have, um, from your experience as, as the lawyer, um, a, a bit more context on that one than I had at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that context is the right word because, um, you know, how did how did one living in Australia have context of uh, what was happening in Rwanda at the time? Um, I have to say I was a junior officer, a legal officer serving in the Australian Army. Um, we were posted up in Townsville, which is one of the far north Queensland uh, towns, uh, it's predominantly a military town, or it was then. Uh, and um, it was before, you know, mass communication, as one would imagine uh, today, uh, where you'd get Facebook or Twitter feeds or, you know, social media feeds as to what was happening in the world, um, you know, thousands of kilometres away. So I, I really didn't understand any of the issues uh, before I went to Rwanda. I got, you know, some very, very good briefings, obviously, uh, as we led to the deployment. But before the deployment, uh, I, I didn't have much understanding. Um, and the consequence of that lack of understanding was that when we got on, when I got on the ground in Rwanda, it was a steep learning curve to try and figure out, you know, what was the real purpose of the mission, as Phil identifies, is absolutely right. You know, of course, um, it was set up for very different reasons. And then it was a term that's been used in the in the UN lexicon quite frequently, which is mission creep occurred. They just kept on asking the mission to do more and more. Uh, and uh, clearly, uh, they didn't have the resources, as Phil's already explained. But I think that that's a really important point to reflect upon when people talk about the failure of Unimir. And we're talking about Unimir 2 as opposed to Unimir 1, which was the observer mission. Uh, that yeah, it failed because what was the benchmark of success going to be when it wasn't set up with an idea of being a successful mission in uh, trying to stop genocide because no one knew that that was, was going to happen. And those criticisms that you have, the lack of resources, um, the mission creep, um, that seems to be so similar to the criticism that I've heard of what's going on in other parts of the world today. Um, you know, whether it's uh, Sudan or what has happened in Darfur, um, 
do you see some similarities uh, between your experience in Rwanda and um, ongoing uh, genocide across the world right now? One of the really interesting articles in this journal is uh, written um, by David Simon where he compares what happened in Rwanda and to the Rohingyas in uh, Myanmar, um, and he calls it learning the the wrong lessons. It's an interesting piece because there was some good that came out of Rwanda, uh, good in inverted commas, obviously, um, because it led to a much greater focus for generations of my students in class. I don't think there's a single student in my class when I teach these sorts of topics that doesn't reflect upon what happened in genocide and doesn't raise the responsibility to protect or the R2P doctrine. So, you know, there was something that came out of Rwanda that we should not forget um, as a legacy of those terrible events. But to me, it's the political will, and this is, I think, what David brings up in his article, um, that the international community as a whole is still very hesitant for a variety of reasons, um, to intervene in these um, when these sorts of events are occurring, you know, mass atrocities um, leave alone when a genocide is occurring. And uh, my sense has always been it has less to do with law and more to do with politics and diplomacy. The law sometimes is used as an excuse um, to uh, allow or as a scapegoat. Um, to allow politicians and diplomats to get off the hook, I think. Um, But, you know, I don't see many issues uh, that are not, that you can't answer uh, by using a legal framework when having to deal with these atrocities. So that leads me to one of my other questions. What are some of the legal lessons that you took away from your time in Rwanda? Yeah, the lot. I mean, it was a life-changing moment for me as a as a very young, very junior, sorry, uh, lawyer at the time. So I, I, you know, obviously I'd never been a, a legal advisor overseas. Um, I'd never been, you know, a legal advisor in a situation where you know you had mass atrocities and genocide. Um, so it was a turning point in my life to really come to grips with, well, what does the law do in these circumstances? And for those people listening to this podcast, I very strongly advise them to read um, uh, Dame Rosalind Higgins' um, dissenting or separate opinion. Um, I can't remember now whether it's dissenting or separate. I have to apologise. But uh, it's a fantastic opinion in the nuclear weapons case where she uses a Hirsch Lauder Pact, a great international lawyer, um, is saying that the law may not answer every question, but it's capable of answering every question. And that quote has meant a lot to me over the years because I learned, I was forced to look to see how the law could address some of the issues that I was seeing in Rwanda or had to deal with in Rwanda. And very, you know, like I'll try and summarise this into three levels 
of legal lessons. At the strategic level, the legal lesson I learned was that the UN had the legal framework to intervene. Now, I can talk more about that, but clearly there, there was no legal uh, prohibition against the UN intervening in Rwanda. Under Chapter 7, um, it had you know, every power it needed to to intervene. Um, at the operational level, one of the really, really difficult issues that we dealt with was where you had a Rwandan coming to you um, or coming to the UN and saying, I want protection as a Rwandan because these people who are accusing me of committing genocide, usually a Rwandan authority, um, are falsely accusing me of committing this crime. I never committed it. They just want my house. And the Rwandan authorities would turn around and go, well, he did commit genocide. Of course he says he wouldn't. Who wouldn't? Um, and um, and so we want to, you know, uh, arrest him. Now, what do you do in that circumstance as a UN when someone is seeking sanctuary with you, says that they didn't commit a crime, uh, and then um, you've got the Rwandan authorities quite rightly you know, in many cases, uh, having to deal with people within their community who they know committed genocide and were hiding inside the community. So that whole construct of detention and what do you do in those circumstances has led me to, you know, thinking about the question of uh, of detention um, and in, you know, in much greater depth. And then, and I'm happy to talk about that as well. In, but then the last level is at the tactical level, um, which is the question of self-defence. And it came about that I was in a circumstance where, uh, you know, it, there was a potential um, for a life-threatening situation to arise. Uh, the Australian soldiers who were there with me um, you know, loaded their weapons and put a round in the chamber uh, and were ready to shoot their weapons. And my commanding officer told them to unload and they did not unload. Uh, and one of the issues that arose then was whether they were exercising their right of self-defence by not following what my commanding officer or the orders of my commanding officer, which was to unload. And, and the interesting point about that is that... Um, and your listeners, this will resonate with the listeners, is that most people say that you have an inherent right of self-defence. Uh, and I've pondered for 25 years whether that is true or not. And, I've, you know, obviously it hasn't taken me 25 years to decide that it's definitely not true, but it was a, a really important turning point for me as a lawyer because there are two components to that statement, you know, inherent rights of self-defence. The first is inherent. What do people mean by inherent? And I think what people mean is that once you claim it, you're in, you have an immunity from prosecution. Clearly, that's not true. Um, you claim it as a defence, so you can't be immune from prosecution. It's a defence to a charge. And right, that doesn't make sense to me either as a lawyer, because what I think people mean by right is that once you've claimed it before the court, um, that, you know, the court then can't do anything to you um, because you've claimed it and you're off the hook, so to speak. Um, 
And that's not true because, you know, I use this example sometimes when I teach. Um, it would be like someone saying that they have a right to self-defense um, as a defense uh, when they've sexually assaulted another person. I mean, the court would never allow, unless there's some really weird set of circumstances, it would never allow that claim of defence um, to go to the jury because it clearly makes, you know, doesn't arise in that context. So self-defence is a very contextual um, defence. It's a justification, as we say, in the criminal law. And um, one has to be careful about creating expectations for soldiers that it's a cop launch that they can rely upon whenever they want to. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.